I'm not uh, beginning to institute um, and apply props in preaching. Some of you are concerned that way with my bringing up the signage, but I was mailed nonetheless a sign this week um, by someone, I'm sure, uh, with good intentions. Um, I simply want to share it with you. I just received it in the mail. I, I, I'm not sure exactly um, its interpretation. I, I'm not exactly sure its edifying value, its rebuke, or its transformative power. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Point being, <clears throat> I think th- this is the fruit. Um, again, not knowing the interpreter or, or, or who it is that wrote and sent the sign. Um, yet we, I think we're given a clear example of handling of the apocalypse, a handling of God's holy text. What is its end? What is its value? What is its application? What is its meaning? What is its transformative power? Is it this? I don't think so. Um, I don't think that... that Determining dates and setting calendars, renewing them to the end of the earth, and deciding according to Old Testament prophecies, and then calculating dates and calibrating years, and then trying to discern who he is and who this is and who that is, and, and, and then beginning to set our calendars for December 22nd, is the force, the purpose, or the fruit of handling God's revelation of Jesus Christ to the seven churches. That's not our aim here. And I think that if that was our end goal in the fruit, is rewriting our, our calendar, we're just growing weaker and more anemic instead of being so strengthened and transformed by the truth of what it is communicating. There's a word here by way of introduction from the sign that I received this week from an email, likewise, that we have recently received about the apocalypse now. I want to take a moment in uh, introduction this morning that is a little bit unusual and a little bit different, but it is, I think, we're coming to a point now, maybe by providence, the active power of God. Do you love that definition of providence? Um, the, what we've received now in the mail, the idea, is this on the mind of people? How are we to handle The book of Revelation. Indeed, how are you at home to handle your holy text of Scripture? You're you're reading it at home, I know. You're studying it. I know, I converse with you. So so in, in handling it and following up on what we're seeing take place in Revelation, I want to give you a word in light of the sign, in light of the email, in light of your own Bible studies, a word on the confusion about biblical interpretation. This isn't just for me. Think, well, you're the one that studies the Bible. You know that's not true, and I know that's not true of you. We all are studying God's Holy Scripture. So let me just give a word to each of us, a word of wisdom about handling biblical literature, studying the Bible. There is a confusing topic that is surrounding handling the New Testament. There is a difficult topic in handling the book of Revelation. Exhibit A, some difficulty in handling the book. There is a 
contrast that is often held up very high. And maybe you have heard this or seen this in YouTube videos or pastors that you follow or sermons that you've heard preached or classes that you have taken along the way or some of the things that you've picked up on your own is the idea that you either handle the Bible literally or you handle the Bible spiritually. If you nod if you've ever heard of that before. Okay, I want to stop just by way of introduction to share with you that that is a false comparison. Think with me just for a moment that we either handle our Bible literally or spiritually. I was thinking in my mind, meditating upon that this week. Thinking, that's kind of a contrast saying something along the lines of this. I don't have blue skin because I'm tall. Right? So your immediate question is, wait a minute, those aren't exactly comparing or contrasting to one another. I'm not exactly of the connection versus the height or the width of an individual in relation to the color of their skin. You're right. Those two things aren't opposite. They aren't in relation to one another. Neither is literal interpretation the opposite of spiritual interpretation. (laughs) Those two things aren't... Do you, how, how is that which is literal? Something opposite that is spiritual. So wait a minute, wait a minute. It, it sounds really good, right? Well, I handle the Bible literally. I, I, I just, I read it for what is stated in it. And then whatever is obviously stated in those verses, I just simply apply. Then there's the other guys. They're tricky. They're doing all kinds of things with it. Well, in light of that, who in here doesn't want to be with the other group? I don't want to be the tricky guy. I want to be the guy that's just honest. Well, okay. You've seen, the idea is one gains a lot of traction and momentum. And everybody wants to raise their hand, and if I ask you, do you want to handle your Bible honestly, or do you want to be tricky? Everybody's saying, I, I want to handle it honestly. That's who I want to be marked by. So when a pastor, preacher, friend, and discipler stands to you and says, the way that we handle the Bible here of what I've taught you is because we handle it literally, meaning, i.e., honestly. You're like, well, then that's where I want to be. And then a guy comes along and he tends to handle things differently. He's one of them. He doesn't handle it. Literally. So, what would maybe be a better understanding of the concept of biblical study, the concept of biblical interpretation, is to think of it more honestly. I would ask my brothers to represent me in perhaps a better light, more fair, more honest. It would be this. One tends to handle biblical prophecy, the comments of the covenants in the Old Testament. What's going to happen with Israel? What's going to happen with Abraham and his seed? Who is David and who is going to sit on David's throne? What's going to happen in the millennial kingdom? What's going to happen with the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple? One group is handling these biblical comments of covenant in a, not literal, don't keep saying that, they handle it in a physical way. Now we're arriving at a contrast. One that is physical. 
the opposite of which is then fair to say spiritual. Now at least we're both contrasting the same things. Both are handling the text of Scripture literally. So to say, I handle it literally, and everyone says, great, me too, that's where I'm going. Wait, what do we mean even by literally? Are we both reading the words on the pages? We are. Are all of us doing our own homework on those passages to look at this passage in light of this passage, and in light of this passage, and in light of these passages, and in light of all of the holy canon? Are we all doing that literally? Yes. Absolutely. But are we seeing something in these physical comments transpiring and speaking to spiritual realities? Yes. Think with me just by brief introduction. Abraham, Jacob's 12 sons, David and a kingdom. In the Old Testament, Abraham, you recall, is promised a land. He is told uh, there in Genesis, I will give you, Abraham, the land. You will possess this land of Canaan for you and your descendants after you. You will possess it forever. And it's promised to Abraham. But you recall, Abraham, when he died, did Abraham possess the land? He didn't. Well, we just understand, uh, no, 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 we understand that that will happen in a different way at a different time. Or maybe we stop and we, we begin to read the biblical text to find out what is the meaning of the land. Where is the land? So we find that Paul in the New Testament, after the great work and person of Jesus Christ, guess what the land is by the time we get to Romans chapter 4? The entire world. What was Abraham thinking, though? Did he die without receiving the promise that God made to him? No. Do you recall the book of Hebrews? Abraham sojourned as a foreigner, looking for a better land. And he inherited that land. The holy city, the new Jerusalem. So when we talk about physical Interpretation. Here we are in the Old Testament handling who is an Israelite? Are we only thinking in concert to a physical description and a physical application? Or are we talking about a physical description that gives way to a spiritual reality? One last text, just by way of introduction, as I'm thinking. Uh, As you recall, many of you, in reading the Old Testament text, there is Ezekiel promising a future. He's promising a future to Israel. And he's talking about these new days and the days of resurrection. It's Ezekiel 37, speaking about the, the valley of dry bones. And they start taking on ligaments and rising up, and then they are covered in skin in this vision of Ezekiel's. And God makes a promise that day. In light of these realities, this resurrection, I will bring you back to myself, Israel. And I will make David, my servant, rule over you forever.
Is that what we're awaiting right now? David. Or was that representation, that physical comment, speaking to a greater spiritual reality? Who would you say is going to rule over God's people forever? Jesus. And you learned that about that prophecy how? You saw it progressively developing in your New Testament text. And you saw that David is, Jesus is the fulfillment of the word about David. And then you came back to Ezekiel 37 and you saw, if they only knew, the great grandeur fulfillment of this promise is even better than David. And it's realized in Jesus. So too, all of Abraham's promises are greater than Abraham ever even imagined, fulfilled in Jesus. David's covenant that he will have one from his household who will rule over Israel forever is greater than David ever thought Solomon would be. The kingdom that Israel was longing for, that peace, prosperity, joy, obedience was greater than they ever wanted or even thought to desire in the Old Testament. It is in Jesus. These physical things point to spiritual realities. You see, but nobody's saying, I either handle it literally or spiritually, do something sneaky. We're back to the idea of maybe we are awaiting one physical fulfillments of all of these or we're seeing these literally speak to spiritual realities and fulfillments. This is the difference. One last text and this is just the brief introduction and then we'll get to because I I wanted to introduce it this way. My heart was led to introduce some of these brief talking points to you uh, because some of you have been asking questions as we're going through the, the book of Revelation certainly about how some of these things are being handled. And also, it really kind of begins to display itself, this literal interpretation of mine, begins to display itself here in our last portion with Revelation 7 and identifying the 144,000. Paul kind of displays this physical to spiritual reality idea, hermeneutic, if you will, in Romans chapter 2. There he describes, literally he interprets an Israelite in terms of spiritual reality. One is a Jew, literally, physically, a reality, inwardly. Wait a minute, he he just took a physical, literal interpretation and saw a spiritual reality about it. He goes further yet to identify a physical reality, handling the text literally. And he says, circumcision, likewise, circumcision, the physical mark of Israel, physically, literally, points to the heart, spiritually. Physical realities, no one's denying them, but they speak to spiritual realities. A Jew is one spirited inwardly. Circumcision that they bear physically is only as good as it is inwardly. For no one 
receives praise from men. Their praise will be from God. By the Spirit. No one's handling the Bible any less literally than anybody else. But seeing literally these physical comments point to spiritual realities. So with that brief introduction, I want to show you this hermeneutic on display this morning, but give you the... (gasps) So he's not one of those people doing really tricky things with the Bible? No. No, not at all. In fact, I think they're doing tricky things with the Bible. No. Just kidding. Turn to Revelation chapter 7 as we begin then looking at physical literal interpretation that will give way to spiritual realities. Looking at chapter 7, I'm going to begin with you by reminding you just briefly the comment of the servants who have been sealed. You recall in uh, chapter 7, we began to identify these ones who have been sealed. And we asked last time we were together, so does chapter 6 take place, then chronologically 7 begins to take place. So you have all the the four horsemen riding in chapter 6 upon the earth, of which I have argued and I hope that you're coming to wrap your mind around. They're riding right now, post-resurrection. The riding of the four horsemen. So were the servants of our God sealed after they were riding? Or were they sealed before? I would submit to you as I have shared with you last week. The purpose of the seal is to protect God's people from the seal judgments. So the servants who are sealed, we know principally about them, number one. They are faithful to the Lord. They're faithful. That is their key mark. They are faithful to the Lord, servants of Him who have been sealed. Now, this week's text continues beginning with verse 4. Not only are they sealed, but we see something different about these sealed and faithful servants of the Lord. Look at them in verse 4, and I'll read through verse 8, and we will come back and begin to make comment. Verse 4, not only are they sealed. Verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed 144,000. They are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And in fact, I won't continue through 5 and 8. We'll get there through the text, but I won't read it for you now. So we see that they are sealed, they are faithful, and now they are numbered. Who exactly are the 144,000 sealed servants of our God? Well, the identification of this group, by way of my introduction, points to the clue. It is somewhat, I could say tongue-in-cheek, lightly debated. This is one of those (laughs) where some who have done studies and read this before can come to grasp. I could see where it would be a bit debated. And it is. There are, however, among the various interpretations, there are really two prominent views of the 144,000 that I want to be able to describe for you this morning. And I will just briefly read a paragraph regarding the one uh, way that they are uh, identified, and then I will preach the second. First group identifies the 144,000 this way. These 144,000 represent a Jewish 
remnant. Okay? You're with me thus far? I forgot to make my announcement about the coffee as I did last week. I was told after last week's message that indeed it was a bit wrangling on the brain to follow along. And as you know, there are some texts that we just soar right through and some texts that we continue to dig through. And this will be one this morning. But so far, so good. 144,000, two major views, of which I think if I were to ask the church family here at Redeemer, you are familiar with these two. And so I have chosen them to kind of speak to. This group represents a Jewish remnant following Uh, excuse me, converted to faith in Jesus the Messiah following the rapture of the church. Okay? the, The church is extracted out in world history, in redemptive history. Christ appears. He gathers the church unto Him. This tribulational period begins. This time of great distress and Jacob's trouble. This difficult age continues to get worse in a tribulation effect. This Jewish remnant is then saved during this period of great trial and tribulation. During which they are then sealed during this tribulational period. They are sealed, as the text says, they are sealed by our God. And they then go through the tribulation period. According to this view... Gentile believers, many of you within this audience, perhaps all of you within this audience, according to this view, Gentile believers in Jesus, Redeemer, will not go through the tribulation. And consequently, only these faithful Israelites need God's protective seal. Right? Because it is. If they're going to go through this difficult age, God is going to keep them with this seal He places upon them. Well, if the church is not here during that difficult age, it then follows we don't need the seal. If the seal indeed serves to protect and keep during tribulation. Well, without tribulation, we don't need the seal. That's group one. Maybe you're familiar with this Interpretation. View number two, most prominent view number two. That is two prominent views. That is the first, a Jewish remnant. The second view follows this way. This number, 144,000, is to be understood figuratively. Now wait before we get into that comment. Hey, so you are doing tricky things. Remember, literally, this number is to be understood figuratively. And that the group who is sealed represents not an ethnic Jewish remnant. But this group rather represents the complete number of the people of God. The complete church of Christ. So you can see, those are different. The church of Christ an ethnic Jewish remnant. Thus, there is much shared debate between the two. I believe the second view accords best with Holy Scripture for several reasons. And for the next few moments, I would like to show you how it accords best with Holy Scripture from that Holy Scripture. The first step 
in identifying the 144,000 in our time together for the next few moments begins really, their identity begins to emerge. Again, I'm going to show you according to the working of the seal of God. It is, if you could in your mind kind of think of the center of the flower is the 144,000. And right now I'm just going to simply show you by way of the activity of God's sealing upon this group. As we look at the seal of our God, it'll just begin to emerge their identity. Their identity will just begin to emerge. It won't say, aha, there it is. Simply what I want to do first is simply by way of showing the sealing activity of God upon the 144,000, their identity will begin to emerge to us to where I think fully it will bloom and blossom by the end of our time together to see the 144,000 are the complete number of the church of Jesus Christ. The sealing activity, if you could think about the seal of our God, that he says, don't let the riders ride upon the earth until our servants of our God have been sealed. If you think about the seal just very naturally, it is a mark of ownership and protection, right? So you are identified by the seal. You could kind of briefly think of it as a cattle rancher, perhaps. You know, praise the Lord, God is not branding us with hot iron. Nonetheless, we have been marked out. As belonging to him. So we are, again, that idea that shows these are my cattle, or maybe we could just use it in biblical terms, these are the sheep of my pasture. <laughs> and, and, and they are marked thus, and then here are the goats, and they are marked thus, or another farmer, these are my sheep, they're marked by me, here's are yours, they are marked by you. It is an identity marker of ownership and protection. My sheep get the care and provisions of my household. I care for them. You're responsible for your own. That is a mark of protection, care, and provision, ultimately a mark of ownership. This is what the seal is. So you're with me on identifying just the idea of the seal. There's two truths about the seal that if you'd like to jot them down, maybe you can meditate with me along these lines if you jot things down. Two truths regarding the seal that just help the 144,000 to begin to emerge. Number one, it is the seal of God in Holy Scripture is provided in the Spirit to the church. It's provided in the Spirit. The seal, seal them. It is provided in the Spirit to the church. Okay? I want to show you that. If, uh, if you wish to turn there, you can briefly, or I can read that for you. It is located, if you want to jot it down, in Ephesians chapter 1. We had the privilege of preaching through the book of Ephesians uh, a year or so ago through Redeemer Community, and we saw this glorious text unfold in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. To the church, Paul writes at Ephesus, Ephesians 1, 13. In Him, you also, the church, all who believe in Him, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It was provided in the Spirit to the church. Paul says yet again regarding the end time event in chapter 4, Beginning in verse 29, it goes to verse 30. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up. Only speak things that fit the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you see that? A mark of a believer? Giving gracious speech? Building people up? 
The opposite of that is in 30. Grieving the Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice. So immediately we can see great strength coming out of the apocalypse. We're talking about, no, we're talking about these end time people. We're talking about this different group of people. We're just students right now looking at the Bible trying to discern what is this even talking about. Step back out and rejoice over the forest. Let it immediately apply to the saints of the Most High, sealed by the Spirit. Is that instructive to you right now? Yes. Live it out. With no regard to being able to say who the 144,000 is already right here, right now, you have seen that you are a saint of the Most High, sealed by the power of the Spirit. And its immediate application to you is, let all bitterness be put away from you. Speak a word of grace. Something that fits the occasion. 5, verse 1. Be an imitator of God. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. This is the immediate value of what we're studying. Before we get too immersed in identifying who it is, let us rejoice and see that we are among them. And so live in such manner. Be imitators of God by the power of the Spirit. So we see about the seal of God, it is upon you. And you are sealed and will be upheld until the day of redemption. And while you live between the moment of your sealing to the day of revelation, be faithful. Be an imitator of God. Forgive as you've been forgiven. But not only is the work of the seal, the angel who is approaching with the seal of God, the seal, the servants of our God, promised or provided in the Spirit to the church, but secondly, regarding the sealing activity of our Lord, this mark of ownership and protection, it is promised to the church. It is provided in the Spirit to the church, and it is secondly, promised to the church. If we wanted to make it a little more parallel, perhaps we'd say promised by Christ to the church. I want to read a text for you that I think will help open what I mean in its promise to the church. Isaiah chapter 60, beginning in verse 14, I will read it for you. I think you will rejoice in just one moment at this text in a whole new way. Isaiah 60, beginning in verse 14, says this. The sons of those who afflicted you, they will come bending low before you. So immediately you're hearing a word delivered directly to ethnic Israel at this time, right? By the prophet Isaiah. The sons of those who afflicted you, they shall come bending low to you. 
And all who despised you, they will bow at your feet. They shall look upon you. They will call you. This, this is astounding. They will call you the city of the Lord. They will call you the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. If you would, in your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 3. And see this Isaiah prophecy that was given to Israel about the Gentiles bowing low, their enemies bowing low to them, calling them the Jerusalem of God, the city of the Most High. That's what they will call you when they bow at your feet. Now, if you're in Revelation 3, look at how Jesus applies this and promises this to the church. Beginning in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. This gets back to what I read for you by way of introduction as Paul's identity of who is and who is not Israel of God. Jesus very plainly speaks of ethnic Israel at this moment to the church at Philadelphia as not being Jewish. Furthermore, he identifies them in saying that they are as liars. He goes on in verse 9 to say, Behold, and this is the fulfillment of Isaiah, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him. Here is the seal of God in the apocalypse. This is by the Spirit, the work of Christ. And here it is identified, the sealing work of Jesus, by the Spirit upon the church. I will write on them the name of my God. You belong to him. And I will give them the name. In staying with Isaiah 60, verse 14. I will give them the name of the city of my God. I will write on them the holy Zion. Just like Isaiah promised. I will write on the church the name the new Jerusalem. Which comes down from my God out of heaven. They will bear my own new name. I want to show you lastly this prophecy given to Israel by way of Jesus applied and promised to the church. I want to show you in Revelation 21 its fulfillment in the new earth and the new heavens. Turn with me in your Bible to Revelation 21 looking at verse 9. This is the 
prophecy of Isaiah spoken to Israel by way of Jesus then applied to all who believe in him, the church. And then here is its final outcome for world history. The new Jerusalem is dawning. Revelation 21 verse 9. And here is the faithful promise of Jesus that he gave to the church. Here it is being consummated. Verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you, John, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who is the bride of Christ? The wife of the Lamb. The church of Jesus Christ. Here John is told, come here. I will show you her. And in light of Isaiah and the church at Philadelphia, guess what we're about to see? The new Jerusalem, just like it's been promised. Verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. I'll show you the wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ. And he showed me what I saw when he showed me the Lamb, the wife of the Lamb, that bride of Christ. I saw a holy city, Jerusalem, just like Jesus promised, coming down, just as he said, out of heaven from God had the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 12, stay with me through verse 14 and we will conclude our moment in this text. Here are the people of God standing. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, its gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and on the wall of the city had 12 foundations. So wait a minute, now we're identifying 12 once already in this text, the 12 tribes of Israel with the people of God. And now look at 12 appears yet again in verse 14. On them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Back to our text here in chapter 7. When John is told to see the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, he is shown what appears to be a holy city. Jesus promised to the church, when you conquer, I will write on you the name that John just saw. The holy city the new Jerusalem coming out from our God. In light of these two truths, that is that it was promised by Jesus to the church, fulfilled in the new earth and new heaven of which we have just seen, provided in the Spirit to the church, the identity of the 144,000 is consistent with the identity of the church of Jesus Christ. At this point, again, you say, well, clearly it could also still be. I have not said that clearly it is completely defined as only solely it could be at this point the church. But yet I have suggested to you very clearly, I think from the biblical text at this point, the burden is to somehow demonstrate it's inconsistent with what's been promised and given to the church. 
It is wholly consistent to this point with being the church of Jesus Christ. That which was promised in Isaiah, identified and delivered through Jesus to the church of which we saw when he told me I would see the church. I saw what Jesus promised, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Just like Isaiah said, they will call you the city of my God. So it was, indeed, it will be fulfilled. Where do I think the origin of the number comes from? I think we are, there is a clue coming out of Revelation 21. Where the origin of the number, I was asked this week, but what's the point in the specificity of the number then? Well, the origin of the number, as I could tell, coming out of so far what we've seen in the apocalypse at this point, and likewise what we saw in its consummation in Revelation 21. The twelve, I would submit to you, are the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve, right? This isn't twelve, this is five. But I'm doing it as by a hand gesture, as a category. Okay? Jen Tinker looked like, that's neat. Okay, right, so we're just saying idea. Okay, that's what I mean by that. So for 12, we see the 12 tribes of Israel. Then we see a multiplication sign. The 12 apostles of the Lamb, which are its 12 foundation stones. So the people of God bear the mark of the 12 tribes of Israel. And their foundation stones upon which the church of Christ has been built is the apostles who are 12. So we have 12 and 12 representative of the people of God of Old Covenant and New Covenant, both being represented in the holy city, sons of Israel and the tribes who belonging on the foundation stones of the 12 apostles. Time, so we see another multiplication sign and we see 1,000. 12, then 12 again, and 1,000, much of you, I think all of you, are better at math than I. I tend to be somewhat verbal and uh, not so mathematical. But I'm fair to suggest to you at this point, I believe that number to conclude at 144,000. So we are 12 to 12 to 1,000. Where did we just come up with 1,000? Let me offer you a couple of references to be able to understand how a thousand operates throughout the book of Revelation. It is a high-powered number of ten, which throughout the apocalypse, high-powered numbers of ten signify great quantities. They stand for something bigger. Let me suggest this to you in chapter 5, verse 11. Well, yeah, I, I heard a page turn. Let's just go there and we'll read it. Verse 11 there in the high-powered number of ten throughout the apocalypse, consistently used throughout the apocalypse. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels. Like, what do you mean? Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. A myriad being ten thousand. That is, there was a lot of them. As in thousands of thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands, a high powered equivalent number of ten. Chapter 9, verse 16, also if you're there, uh, one page over perhaps in verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice ten thousand times ten thousand. I heard their number, just like he's hearing the number here in Revelation 7. 
So we see that the 12 apostles with the 12 tribes of Israel equaling times 1,000, that is a high-powered number of 10, is signifying not a literal 12,000 or a literal 144,000, but it stands as a significantly great quantity consistent with Revelation 5, consistent with Revelation 9 and others. So, the text offers even more regarding their identity beyond just the sealing activity of the Lord. If we look in our passage there of the 144,000, verse 4, there's 144,000 of them, which again is a significant quantity. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So not only are they numbered and sealed, but they are directly out of the tribes of the sons of Israel. So we would respond if we were handling our Bibles literally. We would respond this way. Before, there it is. It settles it. They are obviously ethnic Israelites. It said they just came from the sons of Israel. But I submit to you that the genealogy that we are about to walk through for only the next couple of moments... It is precisely that that points us directly away from it being ethnic Israelites. So it's not just like, well, if we just kind of work our way around the genealogy of the sons of Israel, we can then somehow see it not being Israel. If we go to the genealogy of Israel, it tells us this is not Israel in the ethnic sense. Let me ask you a previous question, a prior question to going into the genealogy just for our last couple of moments. Should we be at this point within the Bible surprised to see the church identified as Israel? Should we be surprised to this point? Is this something new? We've arrived at chapter 7 and it says they are the sons of Israel. Well, that's inconsistent with how the Bible speaks of the church. There's the church, then there's Israel. The two are not one. They are not working in tandem. They are not together. There are two distinct peoples, two distinct programs. So at seven, if we say that they are sons of Israel, we are inconsistent with the biblical testimony. Or are we? I would suggest to you that if we look even just within the apocalypse to this point, turn with me at the identity of the true Israel of the Lord in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we have already seen the identity of the church emerge as the Israel of God. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 2, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are the Jews. They are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. But we know very well that they were ethnically Jewish. So they actually are Jews. And Jesus just said, no, they're not. Because remember, Paul has helped us already. Being Jewish outwardly isn't your boast. It's being Jewish inwardly that is your identity of belonging to God. 
So it is with the church at Smyrna. Likewise, I have already read for you the application of Isaiah to the church at Philadelphia. But as you see there in verse 9 of chapter 3, it's the same situation. Those of the synagogue of Satan, they are marked as goats. They say they are Jews. Oh, they are not. They are liars to say that. This is consistent with Jesus, if you want to jot this down, and Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, in verse 39 and following. There they say, Abraham is our father. Do you recall Jesus' response to indeed people who could claim to belong to Abraham and his household? Do you remember Jesus' response to them? No, he's not. He's not your father. You belong to your father. So to Smyrna, so to those gathered in Philadelphia. You belong to your father, the devil. If you belong to Abraham, this is to all peoples. If you belong to Abraham, you'd be doing what Abraham did. You would believe in me. Those are the children of Abraham who do what Abraham did. Believe in Jesus. This is the identity. So is it odd already in chapter 7 to say these are emerging, this, this completed number of the people of God are emerging out of the sons of Israel. It isn't inconsistent with the New Testament at all. With that in mind, then let's briefly go through the genealogy here. If you want to jot this down, the background to our text here, a genealogical background in the Old Testament for our understanding the listing of the tribes here. The background of our text is the list of Jacob's 12 sons, that is Israel's sons, the tribes of Israel, out of Genesis 35 Verses 23 through 26. There you will find a genealogy listed where Jacob's sons are listed by Moses there in a genealogy. I want to share with you up front as we approach the genealogy, there are about 20 different variations on the genealogies of the tribes of Jacob's sons. There are 20 variations throughout your Old Testament text of this listing. Guess how many this list here in John, or excuse me, Revelation 7, how many it accords with? Precisely none of them. What's my point? Well, consistent with the biblical testimony, when it is altogether unique from that which follows prior, you're dealing with something unique. It accords with absolutely no 20 listings. It is simply, I submit to you to this point, something we're entering into that could be signaling it's unique. I want to show you the significant changes that makes it altogether unique to its original listing that help us rightly identify the 144,000 as the church of Jesus Christ. Number one. And I'll briefly list these three and then conclude. Number one, the uniqueness of the genealogy is Judah. 
Judah, there as you see in your text, is promoted from its original listing from fourth to a position of first. That is a uniqueness about Judah in this listing. He is, rem- he is moved and promoted from fourth within the list of the family household to first within the covenant community. Indeed, it is because, I submit to you, what we have seen already from Revelation 5 is the indicator. The fulfillment of Jesus has come from the tribe of Judah. He is already emerged as the lion of the tribe of Judah over all people's Tribes, languages, and nations. Judah has emerged in its great fulfillment from fourth to first in the work of Christ. This is consistent with what we see indeed in Revelation 5. Number two, the uniqueness with this genealogy. The sons, if you were to read Genesis 35, I didn't go there just for sake of time, but if you were to read that short little two-verse or three-verse genealogy there, you'll notice it lists the women who belong to Jacob first, Leah and Rachel, their sons. Then the concubines, their sons. Leah and Rachel belong to Jacob. The other are surrogate mothers. The sons, this is a significant piece in the New Testament. The sons of the concubines... That is, those who were not wed to Jacob, surrogates, these sons of the concubines are promoted from the end of the line to positions above the six sons, all six of them, that belong to the covenant wives. The sons of the concubines here are promoted from the end of the line to positions above the six sons belonging to covenant wives. What do I make of this significance underneath the lion of the tribe of Judah? The elevation of these descendants of women who were outsiders to the covenant family. They were not Leah or Rachel. They were outsiders to the covenant family, surrogate mothers. The rise of their covenant offspring signifies just that. The inclusion of the outsiders among the servants of our God. Identified from this text is this people group are the servants of our God. They're a complete number sealed by the Spirit as promised by Christ under the lion of the tribe of Judah. And they are Gentiles who are becoming significant members of the household of God. Let me ask, provide this for you in our time. The question could be this at this point with a genealogy. Do genealogies even work this way? Do they even teach things like this? Or are we taking a list of names and beginning to make them do things and teach certain things? I would submit to you a par excellence example of genealogy serving this way is Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy in chapter 1 teaches exactly this, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the Messiah's kingdom. He is the offspring of Abraham and David, first statement of Matthew's gospel. And through the genealogy, you see the emergence of the inclusion of the Gentiles through the genealogy. So to hear the same truth, the inclusion of you into the family of God. The third piece here in the genealogy Dan, of whom you read in Genesis chapter 35, Dan is altogether removed. 
and replaced by Joseph's son, Manasseh. My best uh, attempt to answer that for you in light of the book of why would Dan be replaced? Well, if you look at Dan in the original uh, blessing that Jacob gives to his sons, Dan there is a viper. He is marked out prophetically as a viper, one who will lay by the side and bite the horse's heel. He is marked as kind of a problem child in the uh, Genesis 49 account in the latter days Jacob blesses them. Dan is marked by that. If you watch Dan's development throughout the history of Israel, he is that, a problem child. By the time you get to Judges chapter 18, Dan is full-blown given over to cultic worship and idolatry. If we take Dan's behavior as giving himself and his tribe to absolute devastating cultic idolatrous worship, and you place that concept within the book of Revelation itself. Have we seen the book divide between those who belong to Christ and his kingdom and the earth dwellers who are marked by what? Idolatry. So too, in the great grandeur picture of the 144,000, the people of Christ built from both covenants, the old covenant of the tribes of Israel, The new covenant built upon the apostles' testimony, standing complete and sealed by the power of the Spirit. They are the people who God will shield from His wrath. The idolaters, they do not belong. This is the genealogy of you, the church of Jesus Christ, under the head of the lion of the tribe of Judah, who lords over the entire community. So in summary then, I submit to you from this text here. The genealogy teaches us three things. One, the reign of Jesus over every tribe, which is what we saw in Revelation 5. He emerges to reign over every tribe. The incorporation, number two, of the outcasts. Once again, the picture we received by Christ's victory in Revelation 5. He has purchased a people out of every tribe. And thirdly, the exclusion of the idolaters from the covenant community is taught here through this genealogy. In light of all of this, I think that when John hears the number of 144,000, he hears the number of those purchased by the blood of the lion of the tribe of Judah experiencing the reign of the royal son of David. He hears the number of the faithful church on earth. A final word of application. Go forward and sin no more. Even sealed with the power of the Spirit awaiting the day of redemption. You experience the reign of Christ whose providence is active. Let us be those who are marked by the Spirit in word and in deed. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time together with the people of God. I thank you for your word. I pray that you would strengthen us in its hearing that you'd strengthen us in its application and you'd transform us to live out the community of the redeemed, faithful to her Lord on earth. We love you and it is in your Son's 
conquering, victorious name we pray. Amen.